the worship guide, we are going to be reading from Psalm, Psalm, Genesis, Genesis 41, 1 to 16. And if you're thinking, well, why are you skipping over Genesis 40? Um, Well, we're not going to be preaching from it as well, but Genesis 40 and Genesis 41 is really one unit. So I'm just going to read from the first 16 verses of, of Genesis 41, and then we'll refer to other parts of of the text in the sermon itself. So from verse 1 from Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that indeed your your word is sharp like a double-edged sword, piercing body and soul, joint and marrow, and accomplishing all the purposes that you set out to achieve through it. Thank you that your word never returns void, that Lord, we, we, we don't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. So Lord, we ask that you would now bless the preaching of your word, that you would grow us and sanctify and convict us through it for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, you may have heard of 
a Frenchman called Michel de Nostradamus, or more popularly, popularly known as Nostradamus. Yeah, he was an occultist and an astrologer who, who lived during the 16th century in France. And he was famous for writing reams of supposed prophecies. And they were written in, in uh, what was, was called quadrains or, 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 or uh, kind of four, four line, four verse um, units of, of, of poetry. And since his death, many people have tried to interpret his, his prophecies. I mean, I think National Geographic probably churns out a documentary a year on Nostradamus' supposed prophecies. And it's said that he predicted these momentous historical events hundreds of years before they happened. But if you actually read what he wrote, you'll end up scratching your head because they are incredibly vague and, and cryptic in, in such a way that you can really read anything into them. And they are really, those kinds of prophecies, they are so utterly different from the type of prophecy that we find in the Bible. We look, and we're looking at an example of that in, well, a couple of examples of this in, in this morning's text, Genesis 40 and 41. Joseph is given a special ability by God to interpret dreams and through them deliver a prophetic word. And Joseph's interpretations, these the prophetic word of God, they, as we've heard in the text, they anything but vague and, and wishy-washy. They are clear, they're unambiguous, they are very specific. And what we will see is that every single one of them comes true. And you see, these are the characteristics of genuine biblical prophecy. Okay, it's none of this... Uh, have some kind of feeling about this or a sense of, of, of this. No, the biblical prophecy is a declaration of the word of God, which is clear, is true, and never returns void. And in fact, the, the mark, according to Scripture, Deuteronomy 18, the mark of a false prophet is that their prophecies amount to nothing. So what we're going to see in this morning's passage is that because God is sovereign, he will achieve all his purposes through his word and he will not fail. So there are three points and hopefully these are nice and easy for, for um, Ayla and Leah and Imogen to, to remember. Joseph the prophet, Joseph the king, and the true prophet and king. So let's get into the first point here, Joseph the prophet, the first 32 verses. So we now somewhere in the middle of, of Joseph's life. We saw all the way back in Genesis 37 when Brennan preached to us that a young Joseph, okay, he's probably a teenager at the time. He had the series of dreams of, of being a king um, that the sun and moon and stars would all bow down to him, and, and even his older brothers would, would bow down to him as well. 
But unfortunately for him, boasting about these kinds of dreams did not really ingratiate himself to, to his brothers. And so they, they sold him off to slavery. And, and last week we followed his life as, as a slave. Um, and even, uh, you know, he's in Egypt. He, he was working as a slave for Potiphar. He was no king, but even as a slave, the Lord made him successful because he was with him. And though he probably thought he couldn't sink any lower than being a slave, all we saw last week that he did. Okay, remember, part of his wife falsely accused him, and he was put in jail, and he was forgotten about. Now he's in the lowest, at the lowest of the low, in a pit somewhere, um, but we also saw at the end of last week's passage, even at that lowest point, God didn't abandon him. God was still with him. And the end of chapter 39 ends with this verse that, and the Lord made him, him succeed in everything that, that he did. So as I said, because these two chapters, 40 and 41, are so interrelated, they're both covered here. Okay, well, chapter 40 now picks up with Joseph in prison. Um, while he's in there, two other guys join him, okay, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. And they've been found guilty of some offense against Pharaoh. And one night they both dream dreams and they wake up troubled. And um, Joseph offers to interpret these dreams. And he tells him in verse 8 that these interpretations, they belong to God. It's not something innate with him, as he also repeats that to Pharaoh, as, as we saw. So he tells, so they, they tell him their dreams, and he reveals to them the meanings. And um, in three days' time, Joseph says, the cupbearer is going to be restored to his position in Pharaoh's court. And because of that, Joseph says to him in verse 14, Cupbearer, please just remember me here in the pits. I'm here unjustly. Tell Pharaoh that, you know, he should get me out of here. Okay. Then he turns to the baker and he interprets his dream. And unfortunately, the baker is not going to be so, so lucky. In three days time, Joseph tells him that he's going to lose his head. Pharaoh is going to execute the baker. And lo and behold, three days' time, those prophecies come true. Okay, you see these very specific prophecies here. There's no, there's no room for ambiguity about anything. They are clear as daylight and um, they, they come true. So the chapter, chapter 40 ends with the cupbearer back in Pharaoh's court but completely forgets about Joseph, who is still languishing in prison. And Joseph languishes in prison for another two years. And so we see as chapter 41 opens up, yeah, he's been forgotten about. And now two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And he's standing by the Nile and he, he sees seven attractive and plump cows come out of the Nile and they feed on the reed grass beside the river. And then seven other cows emerge from the, the river and these cows are ugly and thin in, in, in verse 3. Now the Hebrew literally translated describes them as evil in appearance and thin of flesh. So these are evil looking cows that then 
proceed to eat up the healthy looking cows. And so understandably Pharaoh wakes up and he's he's shocked, he's disturbed by this. It's probably it's he's it's a nightmare. You can think of these evil looking cows with red eyes, you know, something you've all had these kinds of nightmares, or maybe I'm just the only one. Hey, that these, he, the dream freaked him out. But anyway, he drifts back to sleep and has another dream, and he sees seven ears of grain, plump and good, and they're growing on one stalk. And then another seven ears of grain sprout, but they thin and they blighted by the wind, and these seven thin ears swallow up the, the seven ears of the plump ears. And so Pharaoh wakes up again. He's also disturbed by this dream. Verse 8 tells us he's troubled in his spirit. He doesn't know what they mean, but he knows that something isn't right. So he summons all the magicians of Egypt, all the astrologers, all the occultists of the land to see if they can interpret his dream. But there's no one who can interpret his dream. And then this sparks off in verse 9. The cupbearer's cupbearer thinks, ah, man, I forgot about that guy in prison who interpreted my dream. And so he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. And Joseph summons, well, Pharaoh summons Joseph out of the prison. Verse 14, it says he was summoned out of the pit. Now, that's interesting. It's the same Hebrew word that was used back in Genesis 37 to describe the place where his brothers chucked him. He was chucked in the pit. Now, he's been essentially in that, figuratively speaking, that a pit the whole time, whether it's been as a slave or in prison. He's been at the lowest of the low. So now he's been brought from the lowest place, a place of humiliation, of slavery, of prison. And now, in an instant, he's being exalted to Pharaoh's court, the highest court of the land. And so he's cleaned up, he, he shaves himself, he gets new clothes, um, and he's brought before the presence of Pharaoh who asks him if he can interpret his dream. And so Pharaoh recounts the dream to him and Joseph humbly replies that the interpretation lies not in himself. And what he says to Pharaoh in verse 16, he says, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And the the Hebrew more accurately translated is God will answer Pharaoh in peace. Shalom. That's the word that's that's used there. Because we know, we've seen earlier that the dream has left Pharaoh in turmoil. He doesn't understand it. And perhaps a part of that turmoil is that the pharaohs believed that they were gods themselves. Now, all of a sudden, a supposed god doesn't know something. You can't interpret a dream. That's a, kind of showing up the, the limitations of one's worldview very, very clearly. And so this is eating him away. And instead, the, only the one true god knows the interpretation and that one true God is about to speak to Pharaoh and reveal the meaning of his dreams to him. So after Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams, Joseph, by the power of the Holy Spirit, prophesies 
God's word. So he acts as a prophet here to Pharaoh. Prophesies God's word to Pharaoh by correctly interpreting the dreams. In verse 25, Joseph tells Pharaoh that the two dreams are one. Essentially, they're communicating the same message. And what is that message? Well, they're going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And the famine is going to be so bad that the whole land is going to be consumed and the years of plenty will be utterly forgotten. And the reason that there are two dreams saying the same thing, verse 32 says, the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. The thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. That's an important verse. Because what it is, is showing us an important truth about God. That he's sovereign. And that as the all-powerful king of the universe, he controls and directs every detail that unfolds here of the world. He directs all the affairs of earth by his providential hand. Nothing happens randomly. Nothing happens by accident. He foreordains and determines all things that happen on earth. And the text here says that these things are fixed by God. And not only that, God is the one who then brings them about. By his sovereign will, as the rest of the verse says, he will shortly bring it about. So this, this is what it means. This is the implications, some of the implications of believing that God is sovereign. That all things, good and bad, at times of plenty that God is about to bring about, and times of famine are ultimately ordained by God. Hey, he's not a God who's kind of bound up and helpless and, and powerless and he's just merely observing uh, things that unfold on the earth. He's not a, um, you know, he doesn't just set everything in motion and then leave it to, to unfold. Okay, that's a, a deist understanding of, of God. No, he's, he's involved. Hey, he's He's sovereign. He is the one who actively brings them about in order to achieve his good purposes. His word never returns void. He speaks and he brings it to pass. He has purposed and he will do it. Isaiah 46, 11. And it's also why Isaiah 45 verse 7 says, I form light... And create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, I know that that's not a popular thing to hear these days. And especially with prosperity gospel teaching, which is it's so influential in our context it teaches that God only wills good things for us. That he only wants to, to bless us. And anything bad in our life is, is not from him. 
Now, certainly, we enjoy blessings in Christ. God absolutely does bless us. But we've got a defective view of God if it just ends there. The truth is that God even brings about all things in our lives, even calamity. And that can be hard to hear. But, but, but bear me out here. And this is why the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, we're not saying that God is evil then if he permits calamity. Or we're not saying that he's the author of sin. He's certainly not. He's good. But yet he does permit evil. And according to his will, he even uses it to achieve his perfect purposes. And he uses these things for for our sanctification. Now we just need to look at the life of Joseph here. Remember, Genesis 37, he was a little snot-nosed brat. Yeah, he was arrogant. He was, um, yeah, he was boasting about you know, himself before his brothers. <coughs> yeah, he didn't have much awareness of you know, just how you know, arrogant he, he was being. But now what is the Joseph here in, in Genesis 41 like? Well, surely you can see a change already. Okay, he's, the Lord has worked humility into this guy. Okay, when asked to interpret both the dreams of the, um, the cupbearer and, and the baker and Pharaoh, um, he doesn't, you know, they, they kind of lead him on and say, oh, no, well, it's you the one who does the interpreting. You the important guy who's you know, so spiritual you can do this. He says, no, it's not me. It's from the Lord. It's by the power of the Spirit. Okay, the Lord has, has humbled him. Through these trials that he has brought about in his life. He's not that same brat that he was initially. And you know, this should, the fact that God is sovereign and he brings about all these things in our life, it should actually give us comfort in the midst of trouble and despair. Because in those times, it can be easy to think that God has abandoned us, that we're living outside of of God's will. And the truth is that God remains sovereign even during the most darkest times in our lives. He's still there because he has chosen to work through every circumstance for his good and his glory. We can trust that in the midst of that pain and mess and all that God is still working out his plan in our life. We are safe, ultimately, in his hands. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's not going to leave us. He's with us. His rod and staff are beside us. And you see, we see this truth unfold precisely in in, in this chapter. It's God who brings about the famine. But as we're going to see, he uses it to bring about his good purposes, which we'll see as the text unfolds.
So let's bring us to the second point. Okay, first point, Joseph, the prophet, now Joseph as the king from verse 33. So once Joseph has, has prophesied God's word to Pharaoh by interpreting his dreams, verse 33, Joseph goes on to suggest to Pharaoh, it's quite a brave thing to do, to tell Pharaoh some advice, okay? But he does it anyway, and he suggests that he appoints overseers over the land to set aside 20% of the country's agricultural produce for the seven, during the seven years of plenty and to keep that in storage as a reserve so that by the time the famine comes, there's enough supplies in the country to sustain the people through the famine and the people will not die. So while the news about the famine is not good news, Pharaoh is at peace um, with Joseph has to say and this idea um, to to plan ahead. But Pharaoh, now Joseph is, must, is in for a great surprise. Yeah, he would have been overjoyed just for the fact that he, now he's been set free. He's out of prison. But Pharaoh does a whole lot more than that. And he asks if there's a man in verse 38, in whom is the spirit of God. And he says to Joseph in verse 39 that since there's none so discerning and wise as he is, he appoints Joseph as his prime minister okay, to rule over his house, to rule over all Egyptians. So incredible. From languishing in the pits in prison as a slave to being exalted as the prime minister, second only to Pharaoh, over the whole country just in a day. Now, this didn't happen because of Joseph's cleverness or any kind of any innate abilities that he had, but it happened because God was with him. He was with him by his spirit. And so what Pharaoh does is that he gives him his own signet ring. Okay, what that would have meant is that now Joseph would have had the authority to issue orders. The ring would have been used to seal Pharaoh's coat of arms or whatever on the documents to issue orders. Um, he's clothed in garments of fine linen, like a royalty. A gold chain is put around his neck and he rides in a chariot just directly behind Pharaoh. So he's the main guy in Egypt. Every, verse 43 says that everyone in Egypt was to bow down to Joseph. He's given an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife, and all the authority necessary to prepare Egypt for the, the upcoming famine. So he gets to work right away, starts with his preparations during the seven years of abundance that come, you know, the, the text said it's going, God will bring it about immediately, and it happens immediately. The seven years of plenty happen immediately. And in verse 49, it says he started storing up Grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And he has two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And if we know the rest of the Bible, we know that these will be the two of the half tribes of, of Israel later on. So as the, the years of abundance draw to an end, this great famine begins. And the famine is not only in Egypt, 
but in verse 40, 54, it says the famine spreads to all the lands of the earth. Now, there's actually extra biblical evidence for this. In Egyptian records, in about 2800 BC, there details a great famine in the land, unlike anyone had witnessed before. And there are records even in the ancient Near East world, so that's like this you know, Samaria and uh, uh, Babylon and you know, the modern-day Iraq of a similar catastrophic famine in, in that part of the world at about that time. So the famine begins, but because Joseph has stored in, up enough grain, the Egyptians are spared from starvation, and everyone has enough bread. And because the famine was throughout the world, what happens now that people from all nations start to flock to Egypt to buy grain. And this, that sets us up for the, the, the story that follows next week. So what we can see is that Joseph's rule as a king over Egypt, it not only saves the entire nation from starvation, but ultimately saves that part of the world from starvation. So let's bring us to our final point, the true prophet and king. So what we've seen here is that Joseph functioned as a prophet and a king. As a prophet, he spoke the word of God to Pharaoh by interpreting his dreams, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As king, God raised up Joseph from slavery, being a prisoner. He was in the lowest place, and God now exalts him to the highest place as the ruler of all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, that all the Egyptians would bow the knee to him. And he ruled with justice and righteousness, and he was responsible for storing food so that all people under his rule were provided for. So doesn't this point us to someone who's greater than Joseph? Hey, to the true prophet, to the true king, well, indeed it does. And that true prophet and the true king is Jesus Christ himself. Okay, as the true prophet, as the greatest prophet, he too, like Joseph, was filled with the Holy Spirit. So it is baptism, Matthew three, sixteen. In his ministry, he declared the word of the Lord, like Joseph did, and proclaimed the gospel during his ministry on earth. And in fact, he himself is the word of God. And the fulfillment of God's prophetic revelation to man, as Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 tells us. And Jesus is also the true king. He's the greatest king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who God raised up to life from the lowest place, from the grave, and exalted him above all earthly powers and rulers and giving him authority not only over just one nation like joseph but in fact over every nation so that one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father and jesus is the one who continues to rule in justice and righteousness over every nation from the right hand of the father 
So bringing this all to a close, when Jesus was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness and he was hungry, Satan came along and tempted him. Matthew 4, and he said to Jesus, Jesus, why don't you turn these rocks into bread and then you'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, and he quoted Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, and he's, which says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we've seen in this text this morning that God provided bread through Joseph to save many nations from sure starvation. And even today, okay, so we pray in the Lord's Prayer, God sustains us with, with bread so that we too may not die of starvation. But no matter how much bread we eat, one day every single one of us here is going to die. And on that day, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the reality is that on our own, we're going to be found wanting. Because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all trusted in our own sense of, of goodness. And like Pharaoh, we thought that perhaps that we don't need God, that we are gods ourselves. And the result of our sins is the death penalty and eternal death to be cast outside the favor of God and into the wrath of God. But just as God in his sovereignty provided a way for the multitude of nations to escape death, starvation, by providing them bread through Joseph, God also, in his sovereignty, provides a way for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to escape eternal death. And how so? Well, through someone greater than Joseph, through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the true bread of life who laid down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of many, that all who believe in him would be forgiven, be saved, be sustained and live forever. And this is exactly why Jesus says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh though you deserve death because of your sins God has made a way for salvation Jesus's flesh his own body was broken and his blood was shed instead of yours on the cross so trust in him trust in him whom God raised from the dead and exalted to his right hand and in faith feed on him the bread of life who comes down from heaven, the only one who truly satisfies us and sustains us and receive true and everlasting life that only Christ gives. Worship him 
from whom God is highly exalted and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God.